Gateway. Good to be here with you. Uh, you know, this digital thing is, um, it's a gift. And on the other side of that, often people say it's a curse. I don't think it is a curse. I think it is just a gift to our community. And it's not the ideal. I want to be very clear about that. Just by way of reminder, uh, we, we have a desire to uh, be present with one another. There's something unique and dynamic to that. And we know that there are parts of our community that are, are as we come out of this pandemic, or at least this stage of the pandemic, there's caution and prudence. And what that looks like um, in our home life, and our work life is different for so many of us. And so we want to be a community that uh, holds that tension well and in an honoring way. And as you're well aware, you know, the CDC has made some statements about how people who've received their vaccinations can operate together in social life. And that's encouraging. And so as a board, we want to continue to operate with prudence. There's some information being disseminated. And it, um, just if you have any questions about that, like if, if you're like, you're sharing things, but I'm not sure, like, can I come? What are the specific protocols? Um, what about registration? What about what about kids stuff? What do I do with these things? Um, please ask info at thegatewaychurch.com. Um, if you have a specific question, we can then respond specifically. It doesn't mean that we have the answer you're looking for, and it just means we get to communicate. And so we'd love to connect and do that. And so as we kind of enter into this teaching on emotional health, which is in some sense about garnering clarity about what's going on in and around us, uh, every aspect of our life, this is a part of it, is us laboring with one another to communicate well. And that is a two-way street. It's not just like a data dump <laughs> from us to you or vice versa. So we, we want to do this as well as we can, and we are learning. Um, so we invite you to, to, to learn with us. Um, and indeed, I, I am glad to be in this little teaching you know, to, to get us to get us going, I, I recently heard about this gal, Florence May Chadwick. This is a woman who was altogether unknown to me. I didn't know any of her exploits until Dr. Brian Loritz had told retold her story, and I heard it recently. Uh, if if you do know who Florence is, you likely know her for being the first woman to cross the English Channel from both sides, as well as the first woman to cross the the Pacific. Ah, not the whole thing. That would be, that would, I don't think that would happen. Uh, woman, man, uh, animal, whomever. Uh, oh, animal. I guess there's animals who live in the sea. Cancel all that and just think about Florence. She's crossing from the Pacific shores of California to Catalina Island. It's a 26 mile trek. And, uh, this, this journey, and more specifically the details of her Catalina journey, they captured my imagination as I heard her story retold. And uh, the story goes kind of like this. When Florence entered the waters of the Pacific back in July of 1952, she commenced on this journey from the shoreline to the shoreline, from the Pacific coast of California to this little island right there 26 miles off that coast of California the Catalina Island. And as she was going, a thick fog rolled in. And I, I grew up in San Diego, so like I have the visual picture of this, but uh, fog anywhere pretty much is the same. It's, you can't really see, and sometimes it's so dense, you can't see your hand in front of you. So this is a dense fog. And she's 15 hours into this. And it's to the point where she 
does not continue. She doesn't know where she's going. There's uh, her mom's in a rowboat encouraging her to keep going, but makes the decision 15 hours into her journey to enter into the boat and comes out of the waters. And what she finds is that she was only one mile from the shore. Following this day at like a press conference, she says, all I could see was the fog. If I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. A couple months later, Florence gets back into the water to swim that 26 mile trek to Catalina Island. And wouldn't you know it, like the same thing happens, the fog rolls in. And although it's the same circumstances, there's a different outcome. She makes it to the shoreline of Catalina Island. And, you know, when later she was asked, how did she do it? She said this, she said, this time I kept a vision in my mind of the shoreline. I didn't know exactly where it was, but when the fog set in, I kept seeing the shoreline in my mind. See, last week we started a new series about emotional health and the way of Jesus. And in order to not rehash or really re-preach all of last week, here's a brief snapshot to get us on the same page. And these are in Pete Scazzaro's words, this kind of invitation and challenge goes like this. It is impossible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. That was this invitation and challenge that we received. It's impossible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. In other words, our emotional maturity, and you could define emotional maturity as our capacity to notice, name, and attend to and love the things going on in and around us. So that emotional maturity, it functions as a ceiling for every aspect of our life. It's as though our emotional, the ceiling of our emotional maturity is where our physical maturity and our social and intellectual and all aspects of our life hit up against that. It's, it's the place where it's capped off. So spiritually speaking, you know, you, you could have whole books of the Bible memorized, taken in to your heart, like you know them inside and out, multiple translations even. You could pray daily, you could fast weekly, you could observe the Sabbath, you could really run through the full gamut of the spiritual disciplines and still be brash, you know, be, be plagued by anger, but it's not so much anger, you're just frustrated. You could be riddled by lust that leaks out into your physical body. You could hold contempt for the other, like the, the person who resides down the street from you while you simultaneously pray for the missionary overseas. See, can't be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Therefore, the invitation to emotional maturity is at its core an invitation into the integrating power of God's renewing love. That's a little wordy, so I'm going to say it again. Emotional maturity at its core is an invitation into the integrating power of God's renewing love. And despite the churchy language there, this is significant because this is our shoreline. Renewal, that's our shoreline. You... And me, we, all of us are part of God's renewal. God's desires are, are, are 
to love his good world through us, through the church. And therefore, he wants to renew and restore us, to transform us out of the image of the world and into the image of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a gap. There's a gap between what we know and how we live. It is, we, we know this stuff, that is, we know that God desires renewal. We know about it theologically and seldom do we experience it holistically. That is, seldom do we experience the integration of all of this. And so, you know, we know re- renewal is for the world, but it's like we have some sort of gospel amnesia. We've forgotten that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are conspiring together with all of creation to see you and me restored to the dignity of our humanity. Not not to be like super spiritual or to um, rise up in, I don't know, like be spiritually disembodied. No, it's to make us more human, to be like Jesus. So my hope for today is quite simple. It is to invite us into this journey with God specifically beneath the surface of our lives, to go beneath the surface so that we might experience his loving renewal. And so to that end, let me just say a quick word of prayer for our hearts. This is not easy stuff to go into, and we'll, we'll continue. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, community of love, we thank you that you are present to us even when we are absent to you. We thank you that you seek after us and we honor you now. We ask that you spirit would come, that you would awaken our minds, our hearts, our imaginations, the fullness of of who we are so we might be who you desire us to be. Form in us, form in us the new woman, the new man. Help us with your power and help to to put off the old woman, the old man, so that we who are hidden with Christ in God might actually live as we are. Help us to step into the renewal on offer, to see the shoreline. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's for a moment just presume that that stuff we just talked about is true. You're like, Kyle, we're kind of here doing this churchy thing. So that's like our presupposition. You'd be surprised. You would be surprised. Like, that's not always the case. So let's just presume that it's true that God desires to restore all of us. And when I when I say that, I mean you and me and Logan behind the camera and, you know, your your cousin over in Cedar Rapids, like all of us and all of us, like all of our humanity, every aspect of us. He, he desires to restore us physically and spiritually and socially and intellectually and, as we're focusing on in this series, emotionally, to, to be a gift to the world. And so presuming that that is true, it, that is, if this is the shoreline that we are journeying toward, how are we going to move toward it? How could we begin to notice, name, and attend to and love the things going on in and around us. Like, like, how could we move toward emotional health? And this is where Schizero kind of starts us off in this journey. He says this, in emotionally healthy churches, people take a deep, hard look inside their hearts. 
asking what is going on that Jesus is trying to change. They understand that a person's life is like an iceberg with the vast majority of who we are lying deep beneath the surface. And they invite God to bring to their awareness and to transform those beneath the surface layers that hinder them from becoming more like Jesus. I don't know about you, but that's um, even just from the start right there. Um, Deep, hard look inside the heart. You remember that Schizero is using heart in the biblical sense. That is, it is the center of your mind, your will, your intellect, all those aspects of who you are. In other words, holistic transformation to take a deep, hard look inside of all of you. And if we can just get this out in the open, I think it'll be helpful as we continue in this little series. This is hard. (laughs) Or let me say it this way. We don't want to do this because this is hard. There's multiple reasons we could linger here for a long time. Comfort, consumerism, patterns of sin. This is not the point. The point is it's hard to look at ourselves in the mirror, to to see all of the stuff. And to be sure, it, it is a good thing for God to lovingly help us see ourselves more clearly. But as Ruth Haley Barton so clearly notes, some of us have been so shaped by shame based family or churches that we resist entering into the deeper levels of what she calls self knowledge. And this is why we resist that entrance or what Schizero calls going beneath the surface because there is fear of being debilitated by shame or swept away by remorse. And so I just, I just have to say that if this has begun to, to trigger shame in you, you're literally like emotionally agitated. I just want to say this, the shame that you feel, this is not from Jesus. See, shame says that you are wrong for what you've done. And Jesus says there's no condemnation when you're with me. So if that's a thing that's happening, I just just want to pause and say that's not Jesus. That's not how the Spirit convicts of sin. Yes, we feel the weightiness of sin. We feel the weightiness of that moving away, the redefining of good and evil on our own terms, because there's consequence to that but it's God's kindness that leads us to turn toward him. And so if that's what's happening in your heart, I just wanna give pause and and clarify what's going on there. But suffice it to say, like, this is hard. And emotional maturity, it's not a badge of honor in the church. This doesn't like, quote unquote, rank us in some some sort of hierarchy of maturity. It doesn't put us in a, in a higher place in an org chart or a place of superiority. No, emotional maturity in a posture of humility, it's about plumbing the depths. And so to help texture this, uh, turn with me to the gospel according to Mark. Surprise, surprise. Uh, go with me to chapter seven. Oh, if this is your first time here with us, I say surprise, surprise after turning to Mark because we just spent like over a year and a half in the gospel according to Mark. So he uh, has deeply shaped the way I think about the world and Jesus. So we're likely find ourselves there pretty often. Mark chapter seven, as per usual, Jesus is being questioned about religious practices that are enforced by the religious leaders of Jesus's day, practices that Jesus himself doesn't really put a lot of stock in. And specifically, the leaders are frustrated about ceremonial washings, you know, as we are as well. 
uh, or rather the lack thereof, and just a little context to help. Many of the leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees here, they've, they've taken up the ritual purity of the Levitical priests. And so all of the practices that Levitical priests would take on so that they could be a set-apart servant or minister in the temple of God, they have now taken from the temple and that structure into everyday life. And this is a noble gesture in part. Um, the challenge is is that it is um, like a testament to how serious they take their faith. Serious. And it's not really theirs to do. I mean, you could say it this way, that they're being overly responsible. No one's asked them to take on the practice of of Levitical priests. The the Levitical law, the the law itself, the Torah, does not invite them to do that. That's actually, like, it's assigned to those people. And so naturally, pride and self-righteousness emerge as they kind of uh, pursue this uh, pathway of uh, a testament to their devotion, and they see themselves above, and they create a pride position. And whenever you create a pride position, there's immediately a shame position. And so Jesus is questioned as a, as, as a way to shame, in, in a sense. And after the confrontation where Jesus dismantles that pride position, uh, this is what we read in verse 17. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Now, before we go on to verse 18, uh, where Jesus offers us some really encouraging words, Jesus wasn't talking in parables. He was talking quite plainly. And that's why he says this in verse 18. Are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of their body. Jesus is talking about exactly what you think he's talking about. And then this little parenthetical note from Mark, like in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. It's likely he's talking to the audience. That's a mix of Greek and Jew. And so this note is for them and their context. And then verse 20, he kind of picks back up. Jesus went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. This is why we don't look beneath the surface, because that's what's there. Am I right? I I mean, and to boot, this is not even an exhaustive list, but to be sure it is an exhausting list. And we don't look beneath the surface mainly because it's so easy to to notice moderated or muted versions of these vices in our own lives. Malice, deceit, greed. I mean, this is the stuff that lurks beneath the surface, isn't it? Or maybe I'm, I'm alone, like we, we can't talk back and forth. Maybe you're talking at your TV or your computer screen, but like, this is what I see. And so it follows that if this is where Jesus wants to bring healing, then man, this is hard. This is a carryover from last week, but it's worth noting here because this is also where this popular misconception can sneak in. If we think Jesus, if Jesus wants to see me restored, and trust me, I've prayed that prayer, 
then why doesn't he just do it? Why doesn't he just take it all away? Like, I don't want to be deceitful. I'm just really good at spinning the truth. Like, and I've asked Jesus, I don't, I don't want that, take that away. And I get that impulse because I, I really have like prayed that prayer. Jesus, take this from me. I no longer want to be fill in the blank. But when I or you pray that prayer, what we're doing is we're neglecting the place of pain as the place of healing. I don't know if you know the story of Thomas. Resurrected Jesus is on the loose. Um, you know, he's popping in on his friends and glorified body. And uh, he pops in on his friends, the disciples. And Tom's not there at this point. And um, later his friends tell him what went down. Jesus, the cross, the grave, no, couldn't hold him. He's alive, back from the dead. Tom's like, no, that's not how it went down. Like, unless I put my hands in, in his side, my, if I touch the wounds, then I'll believe. And so wouldn't you know it, in Jesus' fashion, Jesus pops in on them all again and Tom's there. And what does Jesus say? He says, Tom, touch it. Touch it. Put, put your hand right here. No, no, he doesn't, he doesn't actually do it because it's like the invitation to see that, that Jesus' wounds were there. Like it gave rise to confidence in Jesus. Just from that place that he believed and it follows that uh, if by his wounds we're healed, then our woundedness can be healing for others as well. See, of course Jesus, this isn't because Jesus can't heal. Like, of course he can remove vice and past patterns of sin to the point that we almost don't even remember the life lived with whatever that thing was. And J Jesus can heal, and, and, and yet sometimes there's a scar there. We, we remember the thing. But there's sometimes where it's not healed. What wounds that like Jesus, it, they remain open. They, they remain open as a, as a place of confidence or maybe even healing for others. So again, we just ask, like, why doesn't Jesus just take those things? Get rid of them. But why doesn't he just take the, the, the physical or the mental illness? Why doesn't he take the trauma? Why, Jesus? Because the place of pain is the place of healing. And the place of healing is where God wants to give the gift of our healing selves to the world. You see, the truth is that our family and our friends and our colleagues desperately need to see what a follower of Jesus looks like, what it looks like to follow Jesus with mental illness. Our friends, our friends, are, like our colleagues desperately need to see what it looks like to follow Jesus with trauma in our body and yet moving forward in faith. And I, I intentionally say those things to dismantle any notion that following Jesus is about perfection, because if that was the case, then we would all be disqualified. See, the sobering reality, for me at least, is, is that if we never look beneath the surface, we may never encounter the healing we desire. And we may miss the renewal God has on offer through us. And I say that, and 
I kind of wrestled with whether or not to say that, but I, I say that knowing that that can kind of feel manipulative. Here's, here's what I mean. Um, it's like this, if you don't look beneath the surface, how is God going to use you? That would be a, that would, that would be a really brash way of saying that. I've, I have no idea how God works in those things. The evidence I see with Jesus and his disciples and the, the, the church and the, like, the witness, the testimony of the, of the great tradition is that this is all an invitation to journey with Jesus into the place of pain because somehow the healing or the open woundedness is a, can be given as a gift to the world. I just I want to be honest about the implications about not going there. Because transformation and maturity will not come if the whole of our relationship with God remains on the surface. Just a, a, a glittering image. And so again, we just have to ask, like, how can we begin to notice, name, and attend to in love what's going on in and around us? How can we move toward emotional health? We look beneath the surface. And if you're taking notes, practically this means that we start with awareness. That is simply paying attention to ourselves and our circumstances with God's help. It's a beautiful place we can turn to in the scriptures to see what this looks like. Uh, Psalm 139, just listen to how the poet describes this journey beneath the surface with God. Verses 1 to 12 read like this. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. And some the poet is waking up to the pervasive nature of God's loving presence. There is nothing, not a thing, that can make us fall out of God's love. It is pursuing. From the psalmist's perspective, there's nowhere he can go. That line, even the darkness will not be dark to you, come on. The beauty of that. And, and that begins to awaken in the psalmist, the, the poet, this confidence of God's loving care. Just listen to how the poet riffs then on, in, in verses 13 to 16. I love how Eugene Peterson's uh, translation of the message uh, frames this. Listen to this. Oh, yes, you shaped me first inside, then outside. You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, high God, your breathtaking. 
Body and soul, I'm marvelously made. I worship and adoration. What a creation. Like the poet's looking at the poet's self and just going, this is amazing. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made bit by bit, how I was sculpted from nothing into something like an open book. You watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life all prepared before I'd even lived one. You see, we can begin to think that we don't matter to God. And that, it's not fear. It's, it's not being rushed away in, re, in remorse. It, it's apathy toward ourselves. It's deep despair. Let, let this rock your world. Let this confront every lie and notion that you have ever considered yourself worthless to God. And then hear this climax in the end, verses 23 and 24. At the end of this, the poet invites God because of his loving and like manifest presence, search me. Know my heart, test me and my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Isn't it interesting that the poet can invite God into that place where the offense is not offensive and it's not an offense to the way everlasting. God can see the offense and the poet can be led in the way of everlasting life. See, God's not afraid of our offenses. Jesus of Nazareth testifies to this. He got put on flesh and moved toward us. Like, God's not afraid of that stuff. And this might go unnoticed, kind of as, as, we, as we turn to a close here. Um, but it's likely that reflections like this would be really hard if the poet had an iPhone or any sort of computer in 2021. You know, like, maybe that sounds really silly to you. But some of the greatest ills, the fog of our journey are the distractions that we curate by choice. These little computers in our pockets. Search me, oh God, ding. 35 minutes later. <laughs> I mean, has I'm not saying this to shame anyone. I'm just, I'm attesting to like, this has happened. <laughs> Search me, oh God. And this is not an ought or should for technology. It's simply making an observation that there are other forces at work in the world, other interested parties in your awareness and your attention. And by the way, they make money off your attention. God's loving delight is, uh, is what's pursuing you. He's not trying to mine you for capital. He's trying to love you toward the everlasting life he has for you in Christ Jesus. And this can actually be a gift though, to, to be aware of that. Um, because then we can ask, start asking why questions. Like, why do I turn to technology when I feel stressed? 
But what? Why do I feel sad when I see others happy? Why do I work hour after hour, or why don't I work at all? What? Why do I dread this particular meeting with that particular person? Why do I panic when I, I think I might cross paths with that person? Why do I feel so driven to succeed and to be noticed? Why do I avoid confrontation? Or conversely, why do I constantly, constantly instigate it? Why am I undone when my plans are altered? Or why do I resent people who make rigid plans? Why do I think even the smallest criticism about something I do is an attack on my identity or character? See, awareness curiosity about our curiosities, asking these why questions is, is how we begin to journey with God beneath the surface. In the embrace of his loving care, there's nowhere we can go. Darkness is as light to him. He can go with you there. We can have confidence in him, but the choice is yours. It is mine. God will not force us beneath the surface. He will equip us to move beneath, to look at the iceberg of our lives. And I was thinking about this. I don't think God's trying to not make us an iceberg. I don't think he's trying to like melt us down and make us more fluid or something like that. Global warming's doing that already. See, I, I think God is just wanting us to be aware of it. He wants us to, to see the grandeur and the beauty he wants us to experience his loving presence. He wants us to be emotionally mature. And this takes time. It's not like next week you're going to be like, Kyle, I did it. What did you do? I did the emotional maturity thing. I read the book. I, I finished the rest of the principles. Check, 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 check. Yeah. Um, that's not how this works. It takes time, just as it would take time for the poet to reflect on how God has been good to him and the journey that, that God has journeyed, like gone with him in, the, the, even the capacity to lift our eyes or focus our imaginations through the fog on the shoreline. This takes time, it takes intention, it takes courage. See, it's hard enough just to consider our thoughts. It's an altogether different thing to plunge into the depths of them. So I want you to know this. You are not alone in it. Like you have the, the, the person to your left or to your right. If you're sitting in your apartment alone or your house alone, you, you have the person in your community group. If you're not in a community group, please let us know. We want to help you get connected into that because this social body called the church, like, this is our corporate calling. Renewal is for us. That is our shoreline. It's not just yours or just mine or Christie's. No, it's all of ours. And the reality is God's inviting us into that. So may we receive, may we receive this. This is my prayer. 
May we receive the invitation and have the courage, have the courage to face the place of pain with God. May grace and peace be with you. Amen.